it's hard to capture in words, I think, uh, the greatness of love. Its beauty, its excellence is simply unmatched. Both believers and unbelievers can recognize love as the highest of all human virtue, the greatest expression of righteousness and goodness. Uh, Some would even say that it it is the very goal, or at least one of the goals, of human existence and endeavor. Again, this is true not only of believers, but even of unbelievers. For example, the author Kurt Vonnegut, an avowed atheist, once wrote, A purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. To be loved is likewise uh, recognized as one of the best of human experiences. In the words of the Greek dramatist Sophocles, one word frees us of all the weight and pain of life. That word is love. Love, of course, is a very powerful force, incredibly powerful force. How powerful is it? Well, I think an article that I came across in the pathway, uh, not this last week, but the week before, illustrates the issue well. If you're not familiar with The Pathway, that's the official newspaper of the Missouri Baptist Convention. It's published bi-weekly, and it covers events that occur both within the Missouri Baptist Convention and in the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole. Well, I was flipping through it, uh, I guess two weeks ago, when I came across this headline for one of the articles. Atheist responds to Baptist's service, love. Given what we've been discussing lately regarding evangelism, that kind of caught my eye, so I went ahead and read the article, and this is what it says. I think this demonstrates for us the power of Christian love. This is from an article, different excerpts, I've kind of edited it, so, but it says this. Kim Menon was an avowed atheist. As a child, her parents took her to church, and no one could satisfy her with the answers she sought. I thought believers were just, uh, just weren't intelligent enough, Menon said. Now a kindergarten teacher in Seattle, education is a central part of Menon's life. Striving to get involved in her students' lives and to know their parents, she believes that's how students best learn and grow. But Menon had no idea this path would lead her into a Christian commitment. Three years ago, Andy Brown moved from Camden, Arkansas to Seattle to plant churches, aided by the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program, Missions and Ministry Outreach, funded through their tithes and offerings. Brown, after arriving in Seattle, registered his son for kindergarten at the local school, where he was placed in Menon's class. The school building seemed to be in good shape, but Brown noticed that the grounds needed landscaping and care. A lot of ministry we do is community service, Brown said. A constant presence in the community is the best way to reach people, so we kind of adopted the school. When Brown talked to the principal about his desires to help the school, she was hesitant. Brown agreed to work with no mention of his religious beliefs. Everyone knew he was the pastor of the Landing Church, but there would be no pressure from Brown while he was on campus. He was only there to serve. Many teachers were curious why he would do all that work with nothing in return, so it piqued their interest. He would answer my questions when asked, Menon said, but that was it. Uh, The article then goes on to explain, I'm going to kind of summarize here, how Brown organized a mission trip where uh, various volunteers came and helped him in his classroom, making copies for, grading papers, helping with projects. Menon even goes on to explain how she sat and watched this help with tears in her eyes. She says, I never met anyone who did things like that without wanting something in return. I thought Christians were predators who didn't really care about who I was. They just wanted me to say a prayer and then not give a care about me. 
The article continues. It says, For more than two years, the Brown family continued to minister to the school and to men and among others. They invited her to birthday parties, neighborhood get-togethers, and holiday events. They never hid their faith. Quite the contrary, they continually invited her to church. It even became a joke, with men and saying it would never happen. But as time went on, they all became friends, and she fell in love with his family. At the same time, Menon's marriage was falling apart, and she wanted to save it. She knew that the Browns were pro-marriage and came to them for help. Menon felt hurt, unloved, and rejected by her husband. But the Browns showed her that they would love her no matter what. It made Menon wonder if there was something of all the talk about Jesus. I loved them at this point, she said, yet I didn't want to come to church and get their hopes up and disappoint them. Uh, the article then goes on to explain how men became increasingly interested in Christianity and how God continued to work on her heart through a series of various circumstances and so she, until she was finally ready to repent and believe in Christ. And the article picks up, it continues. It says, she called the church and Brown wasn't available. Uh, so, she, so she spoke with a woman there. I feel something different inside me, men began to explain. During the conversation, the woman led her in a salvation prayer over the phone. Menon brought 19 of her unsaved friends to her baptism. And she is now the part-time children's minister at the Landing Church. My life has changed immeasurably, she said. I used to omit the words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. I was for gay rights. And now I have a different definition of marriage, God's definition. I didn't even know what a gospel tract was three years ago. And now I'm handing them out. Finally, the article concludes by saying that the Browns are continuing to help men and with her faith. And it describes what other churches can do to support churches like the Landing uh, Menon, for her part, part, points back to the love that Pastor Brown and the people of Arkansas showed her. She says this, she says, Tell the people of Arkansas thank you and that they are changing lives. There's a teacher next door to me and she's been burned by believers. They need to come volunteer in her class. They can give their time and their prayers. So I don't think I would agree necessarily everything kind of theologically that goes on in that article, but I think it still illustrates the point how powerful is love It's powerful enough to soften the heart of an avowed atheist. It's powerful enough to open her mind to consider that maybe what she had believed about Christ was wrong. Powerful enough to humble her and bring her to the point of repentance. Love is powerful enough that when the world rejects our beliefs as nonsense, when they look at Christians as backwards in ignorance, believers in fairy tales and myths, they will still pause and consider again what we have to say once they see our love. And this really shouldn't surprise us. After all, again, Jesus told His disciples after personally washing their feet, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As we saw in our study of Matthew 22, 34-40, love for God and love for God, particularly as expressed by our love for those made in the image of God, is the great commandment of the law. It is the principle upon which all other commandments are built, the very foundation of God's commands for His people. This is why Jesus says that discipleship, that is to say Christ-likeness, will be evident by the degree to which one loves. This is how Jesus Himself lived. He fulfilled God's law by loving to the very nth degree, by loving to the very end, even going so far as to lay down His life for His friends, to offer Himself up as a sacrifice for their sins. We are no more like Christ than when we are humble, than when we love. 
In the words of Martin Luther, love is an image of God, and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. Love is the ultimate expression of the Christian faith. It is the goal to which all Christian doctrine is aimed in the life of the believer. It is meant to produce love. As Paul himself wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, or as it's translated in the New American Standard, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what Paul labored for. That's why he spent so much time teaching. It was to produce love. So again, it shouldn't surprise us that love is the instrument that God uses to melt the stony hearts of unbelievers because it is through our love more than anything else that Christ is manifest in us. It's evident from passages like Romans 1 that when it comes to one's relationship with God, no one's problem is primarily intellectual. God has actually made Himself known through His creation, through what He has made, and He's done it to the degree that mankind must actively suppress the truth of God, actually, in order to ignore it. No man's problem is primarily intellectual. It's spiritual. If I could put it this way, mankind's rebellion finds its source not in the mind, ultimately, but in what we would call the heart. In other words, his problem is not with his eyes. It isn't with what he sees, or rather what he cannot see. He can clearly see that God exists. The problem is that he doesn't want Him to. He sees that God exists, but in seeing God, he hates Him. And so he responds to that knowledge by shoving it down and burying it under a mountain of lies and deceit. This means that for any man or woman to repent of their unbelief and turn to Christ in faith, it isn't just their understanding that has to change, but their hearts. They must stop rejecting God and instead love Him. How does God perform that change? Well, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, of course, that's one part of the answer. God makes the person spiritually alive through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And apart from this regeneration, no one can love God. That's what passages like Romans 8 teach us. But another part of this answer is love. Love. God transforms sinners by demonstrating His love towards them. He does this first and foremost through His church, the body of Christ, the present manifestation of Christ on the earth. It's as God displays His love, His beauty, as displayed first through His Son in the Gospel, and then after that in His body, the church, that the world sees that its rejection of God is utter foolishness. And all those lies that they use to suppress the truth, lies like the ones that Kim Menon used to believe, well, they begin to drop away. Those lies aren't, any, aren't, aren't needed any longer because the truth isn't as repulsive anymore. It's beautiful. It's desired, even. Over the past several weeks, we've been discussing as a church how we can improve at evangelism. Well, I think one of the major issues with the church at large today is that we do not love. We do not love one another very well. Even within the church, we don't love one another very well. Our marriages are just as much a wreck as the marriages of unbelievers. We're either too impatient on one hand, or we indulge our children on the other. We do not train them up with loving, godly discipline. Our churches themselves are often known for gossip and their divisiveness and their hypocrisy. So no, we do not love each other very well. And that's a problem because Jesus said that this is the primary way that the world would know that we are His disciples, by our love for one another. 
And then not only that, but we often do a poor job of loving unbelievers as well. We're often just as self-centered as the average unbeliever. We are not known for our sacrifice. Even as it relates to evangelism, the perception is often as Miss Menon describes it, people think all we want to do is lead them in a prayer, tag another convert pelt on our belt, and then move on. We're not known for our real care, our real compassion for the unbeliever. In fact, I think quite often when you look at how we interact in the public sphere, if anything, it's primarily political and it's not to defend the rights of others. It's to defend our rights. We come into the world making demands saying, you must respect me. Not asking, how can I better respect you? It wasn't always this way. In fact, one of my favorite stories from church history comes from the mid-third century when a terrible disease broke out in Rome. This plague, known as the Plague of Cyprian, is said to have taken the lives of over 5,000 people a day in Rome alone at its height. Just for some perspective, that's more than a 9-11 every day in Rome during the height of this plague. And of course, it wasn't just Rome that was hit. Many other portions of the empire were hit as well. The bishop of Carthage, uh, a man by the name of Cyprian, he described it as follows, this plague. He says, Now the bowels relax in a constant flux, discharge the bodily strength, that a fire originated in the marrow ferments into wounds of the falces, kind of the back of the throat. It says that the intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting, that the eyes are on fire with the injected blood, that in some cases the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of diseased putrefaction. That from the weakness arising by the maiming and loss of body, either the gait is enfeebled or the hearing is obstructed or the sight darkened. I read that description for you for context so you understand this was a truly horrific plague. But what did the Christians in this time do in the face of this plague? Pope Dionysius of Alexandria writes this. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. So according to Dionysius, Christians were literally caring for people in this plague to the point of death. They would go and they would care for the afflicted and they would do this knowing, knowing that there was a good chance that they themselves would contract the disease and die. But they did it anyways. They did it joyfully. He continues. He says the the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled, to the, uh, fled, from the, fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated uh, unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So many of the pagans, he says, fled the city while Christians stayed and cared for the sick. 
Is it any wonder then that Tertullian of Carthage would say this of the church's reputation in this time? He says, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that led many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another. For for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner put to death. Or is it any wonder that less than a hundred years after this plague, Emperor Julian I, also known as Julian the Apostate, would note, quote, the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle, or how, quote, the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to theirs, and how everyone is able to see that their co-religionists are in want of aid from us. And he said this as he wrote a letter to the high priest of Galatia, urging him and his fellow pagans to be good by whatever means possible in order to keep pace with the Christians as the gospel was exploding through the empire by this demonstration of love. The early church was known for its radical love. It was through this means, this powerful virtue without equal, that the church overcame the early prejudice that led to persecution and instead conquered Rome with the gospel. I believe that if the church is going to regain its influence in this nation, that if the gospel is going to again advance and the church multiply and grow instead of stagnate or even decline, then we must go back to the basics and become a people who are known by our love. We must learn to actually love unbelievers. Not just say that we love them and not merely treat them as a sale that we need to close but actually love them with a gospel love, with a Christ-like love, a love that sincerely cares for them and even sacrifices for them while they are enemies of God. The problem is, how do we do that? How do we learn to love? As we saw last week, Jesus explains in Matthew 22, 34-40, that all the law and the prophets are built on these twin principles, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's number one. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this explanation is helpful because it tells us what to aim for. It sets a goal for us. What is it that God desires from us? Well, most basically, it is love. Of course, it is love for God primarily that God desires. He wants us to worship. That's the basic commandment of the law. However, this does not mean that love for God is somehow competing with our love for other people. Rather, as Jesus explains, the second command, love your neighbor, is like the first, love God. And we've seen that this is because people are made in the image of God. So God desires love, He desires worship, but the way He wants this worship expressed, first and foremost, is in our love to other people. He desires compassion and sacrifice. In the words of Andrew Murray, Our love to God is measured by our everyday fellowship with others and the love it displays. Or in the words of Jonathan Edwards, love is the sum of all virtue and love disposes us to good. Point is, God desires worship and worship is expressed in love for others. Jesus' answer explains all this. It sets love up as the objective of our sanctification. That's our heading. That's our goal. We are to love. 
Well, once that goal is established, it reveals some pretty interesting things about God's commands. We noted this last week. For example, on one hand, this principle explains for us why God commands the things He does. After all, all the law and the prophets are built on these twin principles. So if you want to understand the purpose of any command in the Scripture, then you can know that in its most basic form, it's designed to achieve one of these two objectives. Of course, this is also all very helpful because it shows us how to respond when God's Word does not address a particular dilemma directly, or when it issues two commands that appear to contradict under one circumstance or another. The answer is always what best expresses both love for God and for others. In fact, if we want to know what love for God and for others even is, what it looks like, this principle shows us where to look for our pattern. We look to God's commands. God's commands are given in order to achieve these two twin principles. They explain what love looks like. Jesus' answer is helpful for all these different reasons. It explains God's commands to us. It gives us a grid or a framework to interpret God's law through. However, the problem is that Jesus' answer does not tell us how to love. It sets the goal out there. It tells us that righteousness is defined by love, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. We actually said last week, this is part of the problem with this passage. This lawyer comes up to Jesus with this question about the greatest commandment of the law, and Jesus answers his question by explaining that the law is summarized by love. These twin principles about love. But he doesn't tell us how to do it. This means that this passage really only condemns us just as it is. Because if God's commands are built on the principle of love, meaning that if I want to understand what love looks like, I have to look to God's commands, then what they reveal in very short order is that I don't love other people. And by extension, this means I don't love God. When I compare my life with God's standard of righteousness, it reveals that I fall short. I mean, I covet, I get angry, Even if when I don't outright lie, I'll still shade or twist the truth. This all shows that I'm a wicked person who doesn't love. So really, this passage condemns me. It condemns all of us. Now, I did explain last week that it gives us hope as well, because it would seem that the reason why God commands this kind of perfect love is because this is how He Himself loves. He's asking us to emulate His love, and that gives us hope that He will love us like this, even when we do fall short. But even still, the standard itself condemns us. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying that Jesus is in error or that Jesus' answer is imperfect or anything like that in this answer. After all, he's just answering the lawyer's question and the lawyer didn't ask how to fulfill the command. So there's nothing wrong with his answer. He's asked about the summary of the law. He gives it brilliantly, perfectly. He just doesn't tell us how to love. Not here. And I think we need to know this. I think that's the question that's on our minds as we ponder the standard that Jesus lays out in this answer. Clearly, we're supposed to love. Love is the chief of all virtue. It's the goal of all of God's commands. The problem is that we don't do it. So how do we develop and cultivate this kind of love? Keep in mind, Jesus isn't just demanding that we perform loving actions. No, he points to the internal part of the person. He says that we must love God with all our hearts and with all our souls, with all our mind. He demands worship. He asks asks for real, actual delight. This, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. Keep this in mind. Jesus has no interest in religious hypocrisy. He wants the heart. 
He even says that if we don't love other people, this is why. If we don't love other people, it isn't because of our behavior. It isn't a behavior problem. It's a worship problem. We do not love other people because we do not love God. We do not worship. So the question that we have to answer as we ponder the implications of these great commandments of the law is how do we cultivate a love for God? How do we develop a heart of worship? Again, Jesus doesn't tell us the answer to that question here, but that's the question that we have to answer if we're grasping the implications of what he teaches in this passage. And that's what I want to try to explain to you in the time we have remaining this morning. Now, of course, this is a theologically broad question. There are a lot of different ways to answer this question. How do we cultivate a love for God? For example, if we're talking about the mechanism that God uses to transform us, the mechanism that He uses to transform us, then we could point to the Holy Spirit. It's just as I said a moment ago, mankind's problem with idolatry isn't primarily intellectual. It isn't primarily a matter of ignorance or education. It's a matter of the heart. It's wrapped up in our will and our desires. Man has inherited a sin nature from Adam down on. We are born with hearts that love sin and hate God. And so we suppress what we know about God and we create idols in His stead so that we can pursue our sin with utter impunity. For us to love God, the Scriptures say, God must then make us spiritually alive. He must transform our will and our desires. He must liberate us from our slavery to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We could talk about this if we say, how do we cultivate a love for God? How do we love, grow in our love for God? One answer is the Spirit. We could also point to the means that God uses to transform us, which is the renewal of the mind. We see from passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and even 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that while rejection of God is not primarily intellectual, this is not to say that there's not an intellectual component to it. Again, Romans 1 states that the way mankind rejects or reacts to his rejection of God is by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we fear God and we cope with this fear, by lying to ourselves about Him. The problem is that the truth just keeps, to wa- keeps wanting to pop up, and so this lie compounds, and we heap lie on top of lie, all to keep the truth suppressed, so that we don't have to come to terms with the implications of a holy and righteous God. Well, the problem for us as Christians is that even though the Spirit has made us alive to God, He's regenerated us. Even though we now love the truth, We still have all this residue left over from that suppression process. We have this mound of lies that we've built up in ourselves over the years that Satan has even fed to us through the world system that he rules to keep us enslaved. And so even though we now want to see God, the problem is that we can't see him clearly because of this mound of deception that we've tried to heap on top of him. And these lies still work. They'll still push us away from God. And so part of what we have to do is excavate the truth from all the lives lives that we've heaped on top of it over the years so that we will no longer be led to reject God with these lies. When we do this, when we put away the deceit, when we put on truth, the Spirit convicts us of this truth and He cultivates a love for God in us. 
But of course, there's still an active role that we have to play in scraping away the dirt. That's why Paul states the command passively. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The idea is that there's an outside force renewing us, the Holy Spirit, but He's doing it as we take an active role in putting off our old way of life, our old thought patterns, and renewing them with biblical ones. In other words, if we're going to learn the love of God, then we must cultivate our thoughts. We must study and then willfully, intentionally think according to the truth that is revealed in the Scripture. The Spirit will transform us He's the one that will do the work, but He'll do this as we renew our minds. That's the means that God uses to transform us. We can also speak of what I like to call the media of our transportation. So you have the mechanism of our transformation, the means, and also the media. The media, of course, that term is a plural form of medium. When we speak of a medium, we're talking about the agent, the instrument through which an idea is communicated. For example, when we use the phrase mass media, we're talking about instruments through which people can communicate to large groups of people, things like radio or television or the internet. These are all various forms of media. Well, likewise, the media of spiritual transformation are the Scripture, the Church, and prayer. Some Protestants would add a fourth as well. They point to the sacrament, but otherwise there are basically three. So we renew our minds. How? Well, first and foremost, we pray. We ask God to change our hearts. That's the first medium. The second is the Word. We renew our minds through the study of Scripture. We put on new thoughts by studying God's revelation of Himself. And then finally, there's the church. We spend time in fellowship with Christ's church, and we speak the truth to one another in love. We renew our minds in this way as well. And of course, the Spirit is active in all three of these media. He helps us in our prayers. He inspires the Word and convicts us of its truth. He indwells and matures the body so that we can minister to one another in love. So if we're asking ourselves, how can we cultivate a love for God? This is another way we could, could answer. We could say we engage the media that God has established for our transformation. But the idea that I want us to focus on in the time we have left is the message that transforms us. What's obvious at this point is that if we're going to love God, then there must be a renewal, an inner renewal of the mind that must take place. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, right? All our soul, all our mind. And this is actually the basis of our love for other people. So if we're going to fulfill God's command to love our neighbor, then we have to start there. We have to start with our love for God. And this love is primarily internal. God wants us to love from the heart. Well, this love for God, again, it occurs as we renew our minds. We put off our old system of lies that we use to run away from God, and we filter out and discard those lies that the world system uses to push us away from God, and we put on biblical truth so that the Spirit can convict us of this truth and intoxicate our souls with the love of God. Of course, this all happens as we spend time in fellowship with the body, as we study Scripture, as we pray. But what is the content of this renewal? We're putting on these new thoughts, and these new thoughts not only teach us what love for God looks like, but they actually train us to love God. Again, there is truth that we can come in contact with as Christians that lifts our soul up to worship and then spills out over into love. 
It transforms our desires so that we cease our selfishness and self-centeredness and instead conforms us into the image of Christ. It leads us to love like He loved with that same level of humility and sacrifice. What is this truth? Well, that's what I want to look at briefly. And again, there's obviously more here than we can talk about in one sermon. The whole of Scripture is actually meant to disclose this revelation, but I want to try to summarize, summarize the big picture of what the Scripture says uh, will teach us how to love God into two points. So the first point is this. Grace. Grace. If you want to grow in your love for God, then think often of grace. I think this point is best illustrated with the account of the sinful woman in Luke 7, 36-50. You're probably already familiar with the story. Jesus is invited to dine with a Pharisee, and so he goes to the Pharisee's house and he reclines at his table. Well, in the middle of the meal, this woman who's known as a terrible sinner, she comes in and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with ointment. And as she kneels and begins the process, she starts weeping. And of course, what does she do? She wets his feet with her tears and she wipes them with her own hair and she even kisses his feet before finally anointing his feet with the ointment. The Pharisee, of course, is scandalized by all this. He can't imagine why Jesus would let such a sinful woman do this to him. And he even reasons, actually, that Jesus can't be a prophet because of this. Because if Jesus was a prophet, then he'd know what kind of a woman this is, and he'd never let her, t- let her touch him. Jesus realizes all this, because he is a prophet. <laughs> and he turns to the Pharisee, a man by the name of Simon, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the Pharisee answered, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose to whom, uh, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's a very common sense answer, right? The one who has the greater debt owes more to the man who forgave him. It's reasonable to assume that he will have a deeper love for that moneylender out of a deep gratitude he feels for the forgiveness of the debt. Well, Jesus says to Simon, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, so turning to the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is a very important principle. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. It is grace that melts the heart of the rebel and transforms them into a worshiper. You see, all of God's attributes are a cause for worship, right? All of God's attributes are a cause for worship. I mean, His power, His knowledge, His omnipresence, His eternality, His self-existence, these are all awesome ideas that when we understand them rightly, they humble us before God and cause us to worship. But here's the thing. Apart from His grace, what do all these attributes mean to me as a sinner? What does His power mean? What does His knowledge mean? For instance, when matched with His holiness or His justice, it all means that I'm condemned, right? 
Those attributes by themselves don't make me love God. Not in my condition as a sinner. Actually, they cause me to fear Him and to run away. This is really where the whole Romans 1 process starts. In my sin, I stand condemned. Satan tempts me, he exposes my sin, and then he whispers in my ear, he's a just God, and he means to punish you. And this much is true. God is just. And he will punish my sin. It's just not the whole truth. It fails to mention his grace. So what do I do in that condition? What do we all do apart from God's regenerating work? We start heaping up lie upon lie on top of that truth. We cover up the glory of God and then we fashion some idol to erect and worship in His place. And this God, if we even call it that, is a poor imitation of the original. Even if it's an image that we try to carve to vaguely resemble the original, it does it very poorly and it does not capture our imagination in the same way as the first. It's grace that tells me that I don't have to run from God. It's grace that tells me that I can stand before God as a sinner in all His glory and not be afraid. It's grace that tells me that all those attributes that can be employed against me for my destruction can instead be employed against, uh, for me for my good. It's grace that stops the process of deceit and instead encourages us to bask in the light of God's glory. And of course, not only that, but as Jesus points out in the account of the sinful woman, it fills me with gratitude towards God as I realize how great of a debt I've been forgiven of. I mean, when I realize how great of a sinner that I am, when I realize the kinds of things that I've done to attack God and to diminish His glory, unprovoked, things that I've done unprovoked, and then I realize that in spite of my hostility, that God has loved me still. When I realize that the punishment that I rightly deserve, that God has freely forgiven me of, that He's done this at enormous, enormous cost to Himself, even taking on the penalty of my sin on Himself, suffering in my place so that I can have life, that not only fills me with tremendous gratitude, but it fills me with worship. What kind of a God loves like this? An awesome God, right? That's who. It's not the God that Satan tries to sell to us, the vindictive, hateful tyrant. No, it's a God full of love and mercy, one that we can run to in our sin and embrace, and He will not turn us out. How can you not but sing in response to this kind of a God? This is what grace does. It pulls the sinner into worship. And grace, by the way, is manifest in more than just God's relationship with us as sinners. It's expressed in His love for us as His creatures as well. In other words, even apart from our sin, even apart from our sin, God is gracious to us. He creates us and He gives us life. He sustains the creation by the power of His Word so that we might live. He does this, by the way, both for the sinner and the saint. For those of us who are in Christ, He also orchestrates the circumstances of our life for our goods that we might grow in our love for God. Basically, He takes care of us. And we can think on these things as well and be grateful. Our love for God can be cultivated by the thought that God loves us and He cares for us and sovereignly rules over our lives for our good. Essentially, what grace says is that we don't have to fight 
for our spiritual or even our physical lives because God will take care of us. Let me tell you, that thought, that thought will change the way you interact with people. Listen, when you, when you realize that all of your needs are already taken care of, guess what happens? You stop engaging in this tug of war with other people where you fight with them to fulfill your needs. And instead, you begin to wonder, with boldness actually, how can I serve them? That's why there's all this conflict and turmoil in our lives, James says. It's because we have these unfulfilled desires that conflict with the unfulfilled desires of others. And so we fight and inflict pain on others as we engage in this kind of -of tug-of-war to see who will have their desires fulfilled. When those unfulfilled desires go away, because you realize that God in His grace will take care of everything you truly need, that battle stops. Instead, in gratitude to God, out of joy, actually, you begin to look on your neighbor, see their hurts, see their needs, and wonder, how can I share God's grace with them as well and heal that? This is actually one of the eye-opening revelations of the Cyprian plague, the reason why the Christians were so eager to serve their unbelieving uh, neighbors was because they did not fear death. And they saw the whole ordeal as a trial that was meant to strengthen their faith in God. As Cyprian of Carthage Carthage writes, he says, Although this mortality has contributed nothing uh, nothing else, uh, it has especially accomplished this for Christians and servants of God, that we have begun gladly to see martyrdom while we are learning not to fear death. These are trying exercises for us, not deaths. They give to the mind the glory of fortitude. By contempt of death, they prepare for the crown. Our brethren who have been freed from the world, think of that, freed from the world, by the summons of the Lord should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost, but sent before, that in departing they lead the way, that as travelers, as voyagers are wont to be, they should be longed for, not lamented. Likewise, Dionysius writes, Other people would not think this a time of festival, but far from being a time of distress, It is a time of unimaginable joy. These people loved because they believed that God had already taken care of their needs. And they understood if that would not be felt here on earth, then it would at least be felt in heaven. Do you know where this thought comes from? This comes from a people who have bathed their minds in the grace of God. They've cleansed themselves of the lie that says God does not know nor care. And instead they have come to know, to really know, that their needs have been supplied. And so out of their great love for God, out of their gratitude and desire to see His glory magnified, they were willing to freely give their lives in the service of others. Even if that service meant death, if that service would but manifest God's amazing love, to those people as well. And this leads us to our second point, which is this, faith. Faith. If you want to grow in your love for God, then you must learn to exercise faith. Now, I wouldn't actually separate this point from the first one, not entirely. In other words, this is not distinct from grace, I don't think. Rather, I would say that this is one of the primary ways that God has established for us to see His grace. We live by faith. If I could put it this way, 
I know that the Bible says, the Bible says that God is gracious. The problem is that I'm very often overcome with doubts. Right? Aren't we all? Like we know, we know that the Bible says that God cares for us. But there are moments where it's hard to see it. When God brings suffering in our lives, the very suffering that the Bible says is meant to refine us and teach us how to love Him more, when there's this type of affliction that overcomes us, or when there's some obstacle in our path that we can't seem to overcome, it can be very hard for us to see God's kindness and grace. It can instead seem like God has forsaken us, that He's turned His back on us. What do we do then? What do we do when we can't see the goodness of God no matter how hard we try? Or what do we do when the idols that, were once, that we were once enslaved to, what do we do when they rear their heads once again and tempt us? Like we've tried to put off their deception and we know that the joy and comfort that they promise are lies. And we know that what God has in store for us is better, that there is real satisfaction to be found in obedience to His command. And yet, in the moment, it doesn't feel that way. You know what I'm talking about, right? There are moments in our life, whether it be in times of temptation or in times of trial, when as much as we know that God is good, it's still hard to apply that truth to our hearts. For example, one of my problems is that, whether whether it's by nature, by nurture, however you want to describe that, however you want to frame it, One of my problems is that I'm a workaholic. That's my natural tendency. It's actually something I struggle with. I know with my mind that my identity is to be found in Christ and not in my work. I know in my mind that my family should come before my work. But there's this default setting in me that says you need to keep working. If you don't keep working, then you know, either people won't respect you, or you know, in the context of this church plant, the church won't grow, or you won't be able to earn a living. And, and just to be completely honest, there have been moments during the early stages of this church plant where these last two would creep up on me in particular. There are times when I would wonder, if the church doesn't grow, will I be able to provide for my family in five years? What if people don't come? And do you know what would happen? When I began to fear like this, I started working harder. I started putting more hours in. And if I wasn't careful, I would start to neglect my family. I'd flip my priorities, put my work first, and neglect the kind of love that I was supposed to have for them. Again, this is where you see this relationship between the understanding of God's grace and love. It's when I know that God will provide that I'm freed to love my family. In fact, I've noticed that the way I even perform ministry will change depending on whether or not I'm trusting in God's ability to provide. I've seen how if I don't trust that God will provide, I'll stop actually caring for other people and instead I'll try to get something from them. I'll start to see something as foundation, as evangelism, for instance, not as a way to glorify God, but as a a means for future financial security, as shameful as that sounds. I'll try to evangelize, not out of my love for other people, nor out of a love for the glory of God, but out of a love for myself. 
Can you see how this works? Again, it's our trust in God's grace that frees us to truly love other people. It frees us from our selfishness and our self-centeredness because we realize that we already have everything we need. Now, I knew in those moments, I knew that passages like Matthew 6, 25-34, that they tell me I don't need to worry about tomorrow. That I need to instead seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness because all these other things I need will be added to me because God cares for me. I knew that passage. And I knew it should ease my worry about the future enough that I could truly love other people. The problem is that as much as I knew that that passage is true, there were these moments where it didn't feel like it was true. Again, doubt would begin to creep in and I would wonder, is God really going to act? Is He going to do this? Or do I got to do this myself? And it was hard to truly worship in that moment precisely because I couldn't see the love of mercy in God. Not clearly. What do you do in those moments? Again, ideally, we can just believe what the Scripture says about God's grace and that would lead us to naturally express the kind of love that God demands in His commandments. But what do you do when even after you've pursued those thoughts that God uses to cultivate this kind of love in us, even after you've done that, you still have a hard time worshiping because you fail to grasp the goodness of God? The answer is, you live by faith. You live by God's priorities according to His pattern anyways. And you do this so that you can see His goodness. In other words, when I stress about my financial future, or when I begin to find myself seeking praise for men, or when I feel that urge begin to creep back in to trust in my work, in the work of my hands, rather than in the provision of God, when I feel that urge to neglect my family for the satisfaction that I find in work, or when I feel the doubt begin to creep in and I have a hard time believing that God will take care of me, what do I do? I must choose to ignore those feelings and do what God has asked me to do anyways. I tell myself, you know, this sermon doesn't have to be perfect. God can use this even if it has flaws. And then I resist the urge to put that extra time in and I attend to my family anyways. And the reason I do this is because when I obey God in this way, even when I doubt, it is then that I get to see that God really does supply and that helps me see God's grace in such a way that I can trust. It does get applied to the heart. If I choose to work harder in that moment and then say I do see some progress in the aftermath of it, even still I didn't learn how to trust God in that moment. And I've actually taught myself to trust my own effort rather than God. It's when I force myself to trust God at His word that I get to witness His faithfulness to me. This in turn increases my worship of God. In fact, it appears that this is actually part of the sanctification process. Salvation is more or less a passive endeavor. Don't get me wrong in this. My mind and my will were engaged at the point of salvation. But the actual act of transformation was entirely a work of God. It's something that kind of happened to me. Okay? Sanctification is a little bit different. And that's not to say that it isn't God who does it. But he very clearly indicates that I must play an active role in this process as it's going to happen. Again, we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. There's definitely a God component there. He's doing the renewing, but there's also a command as well. The idea is that I must actively engage in the renewal of my mind if God is going to renew me. Well, it would seem that at least part of the reason why God has designed the sanctification process this way 
is because he doesn't just mean for us to receive grace in some kind of judicial sense only. No, he means for us to understand and experience it firsthand. And how does that happen? Well, it happens when we exercise faith. It's when we can't see the goodness of God and then exercise faith anyways, only to then witness God's faithfulness firsthand. It's then that we begin to finally not just say God is faithful, but rather we can say, I've seen and tasted his faithfulness. We learn it not just intellectually, but experientially as we actively trust God in times of doubt, in times of temptation and trial. So when you get angry, for instance, you get angry because of wrong thinking. Again, James 4 makes this clear. The reason why you dispute with other people is because you're seeking the wrong things and you're seeking them for the wrong reason. You're harboring idols that other people are threatening. Now, in the moment, you can sometimes recognize that idol and you can know it's wrong, but you still have trouble putting it away. As much as you don't want to be, you still get angry. And what do you do in that situation? Again, you renew your mind actively by choosing to shun the idol. You turn away from it so that you can see how much better God's purposes are are for you, which will, of course, help you eventually abandon that idol in your heart. In other words, you don't lash out in your anger. Instead, you try with all your might to act in love so that you can learn by experience what Jesus means when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to love and serve others, meaning it's better for you, actually. You will actually have a ha- be happier, be more full of joy when you serve other people than when you demand that they serve you. You discipline yourself to live by faith in that moment so that you can see the witness, wisdom and goodness of God in His command and then truly trust Him. This is how you cultivate love when it is hard. You believe in God's grace and you walk by faith. So, grace and faith. These are the two components that God uses to transform us into worshipers that love the people around us. It is as you saturate your mind with the thoughts of God's love and then walk in obedience to His commands so that you can experience and witness that love firsthand that you'll begin to see yourself slowly transformed more and more into the image of Christ over time. And I want to make that point clear, by the way. This isn't instant. This doesn't happen overnight. Again, because of the residue we've built up in our unbelief, even the pain that we've experienced over the course of years, this renewal process is not instant. We have a lot of lies whose roots go very deep in our hearts that we have to really work to uproot by receiving the proclamation of God's grace by faith. And as we walk by faith and see God's grace more and more clearly, we touch it, we taste it, we experience it. This worship is going to build over time, and as it builds, we will see this increasing love for other people follow. But it is a process. It's it's not instant. It takes time. So don't think I'm saying that this is all going to happen at once and you can just go out and apply these principles today and you'll start loving other people tomorrow. It's gradual. But over time, as you apply these ideas, you will grow in your love for God and for others. And of course, this raises another question, which is how do we apply these principles practically? Right? So we can see the message that God uses to transform us. It's the same message, actually, that he uses to soften the unbeliever. It's his love. 
But what can we do practically to put on these thoughts? That's what I'd like to spend some time discussing tonight. You can see this evening's discussion questions printed in your bulletin. So there's more to discuss here if we're going to cultivate this love, and we can talk about that tonight at 6. But as we close, let's pray that God would help us to do this. Let's pray that He would help us cultivate this love for Him. After all, if we're going to accomplish His mission, right? This is really where it begins. It begins with our worship. Evangelism is really just an expression of worship. Likewise, the love that God will use to soften the heart of of unbelievers, this will come out of a heart of worship. It all starts here. So let's pray that God would help us cultivate this love for Him and that He would do this for the advancement of His kingdom and for His glory. Let's pray.